Welcome to Taking It All Off. I'm Bianca from the Office for Sexual Violence, Response, Support, and Education. And I'm Charlene Lewis-Sutherland from Student Housing Residence Life. This is the podcast that brings you informative, insightful, and sometimes hilarious information about sex, sexuality, love, and intimacy from students and other McGill members. As always, we're excited to welcome guests to our show to highlight their unique insight and relate our topics to McGill context. However, it should be said that the views expressed in our podcast are representative of the speakers themselves. Ever heard someone say they were love-struck or that being in love made them do wild things? In this episode, Love in the Brain, our guest chatted about how society values and accepts love, if everyone is allowed to love, the different kinds of love that exist, and much more. Here's some of that conversation. First, we're going to start off with Maya. She's a psychology student. Moisa, who's from the Wellness and Res Facilitator and with McGill Res Life. Daniel Almeida, PhD candidate in neuroscience. And Catherine from Sociology, Honors Students, and a volunteer with Consent Miguel. So before we get to the questions, I'd like to also introduce my co-host, Shar from Res. Hello. And I'm Bianca from Consent Miguel and the Office for Sexual Violence Response Support and Education. We're really excited to be here in the studio to talk about love in the brain and what that really means. So we've had a few articles to read over that kind of talk about the way love affects the brain and uh, toss together a few questions. So should we just get into it and start with some of the questions? And Yeah, let's do it. All right, so I think the first question uh, that we were posing was about whether or not you think it's important to talk about or understand emotions, love, and how it affects like the human body. Okay, sure. Uh, I definitely have a perspective. Um, so knowing a little bit about uh, the neurobiology of love uh, teaches us a bit about the behavior that we often see uh, in different stages of love. And so, um, you know, that's really important for us to understand our partner and, and why, for instance, um, you know, our interactions may change over a relationship. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's important. Yeah, I think a lot of the time um, with the sort of poor decision-making, blind love, maybe anxiety that can come with love. We attribute that to personal failing or um, something that's wrong with us. So knowing that that comes from neuroscience and the effects that love is having on our body can really help um, depersonalize that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just adding to that also, uh, I think sometimes there's a lot of societal taboos against feeling romantic feelings for a certain person uh, in a situation. And so, again, like that helps us rationalize and understand a bit um, instead of perhaps uh, self-depreciating or feeling ashamed or feeling anxious or even those uh, situations becoming something that's um, more, um, how could we say, that contributes to mental, I'd say, unhealth. Um, so, yeah, again, I think it's very important to understand. Yeah, I really like that, especially about rationalizing love. Um, I also think one of the ways we share love and is through communication, and so much of that is through our body and, and through physicality. So it's really nice to explore how that relates to how our brain um, considers and deals with love and those kind of emotions. 
Yeah, Moise, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, a lot of the work that we do on campus is actually talking about the different ways that we communicate. Um, we're always fixated on verbal cues, but really there's so much communicated in our body language, mm -hmm. obviously recognizing that that's cultural or societal as well. Um, but what is being open to different forms of communication bringing us and when we're closed off to us to it what are we missing um so we've got a lot of great points on this one and i thought maybe that we could move it forward in terms of how has society constructed the concept of being love struck i mean first of all actually is everybody familiar with that concept I, when I think about love struck, for some reason, I think about a rom-com. Like, that's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think love struck. I think possibly Hugh Grant um, <laughs> and the idea of, like, walking into a room and, like, not being able to speak because there's some person on the other side of the space that's, like, smoldering and, like, you kind of hear music in the background and you're, like, slowly moving towards them. You don't know how. You're totally disembodied. But to be perfectly honest, I, I don't I mean, maybe it's me. I've never been in that situation. I've definitely thought that person is, is hot. You know, I can't think about <laughs> anything, but how hot that person is, like, this happens. But I don't know. Has anyone ever uh, been, like, love-struck, quote-unquote? We got some no's in this uh, room. Um, that's a good question. This is something that's kind of, um, kind of hard because there's situations where you could not be love-struck uh, and, and slowly learn to love somebody and then there's situations that I've encountered where I saw someone and I definitely felt that kind of metaphor of like a thunderbolt and a loss of control and I'm blushing and I'm giggling and I'm sweating and then I'm nervous and I run away and then I come back and so I've definitely experienced that situation uh, and it's been embarrassing to say the least. Yeah. I'm actually going to throw this back to the neuroscience student in the room and uh, ask, you know, is there science between the concept of being love struck and why do we get all these body sensations when sometimes we just see somebody walking down the street? Yeah, so um, I think sort of the best way to answer this is by looking at some of uh, Dr. Helen Fisher's work uh, that talks about uh, different stages of love. Um, so really the first stage of love uh, tends to be sort of lust, right? So that's usually the sexual attraction feelings. You see somebody walking down the street and you say, definitely interested in them, um, and then moving more so towards uh, attraction. And attraction is a really interesting uh, component of love um, because that's where uh, we have lower levels of serotonin and uh, really the dopaminergic side of love. So a lot of pleasure going on. Um, interestingly, uh, you have lower levels of serotonin at this point, uh, which is the same as people who uh, have OCD. And so it makes sense because that's the stage of love where you're obsessing and compulsing over, oh my God, they didn't text me. Why are they not texting me? I should check my Instagram. I should check my Snapchat. I should check all these things. And then finally moving towards um, actual uh, attachment, and that's the oxytocinergic system, so the, the cuddle hormone or the love hormone. So mm -hmm. very different stages and different biology. I want to pop in there for a second because you mentioned that thing about OCD, and I feel like I've had this conversation with my friends, and let me know if you feel like you've felt similarly where you have a friend and they get into a relationship and they disappear. You're like, I can't remember what they look like or, like, the last time I saw them because they have literally, like, closed themselves off and they are in a space with this, like, person with their partner and nowhere to be found. And you, like, send emails and, like, you get one-word replies and you're like, I guess I will see you when I see you. Is that something that other people have experienced? Yeah, for sure. I've had that so many times, just, like, having friends and, like, it's understandable, like, from the outside perspective, they found someone new and they want to spend time with them. But I have found, like, 
you do they they do kind of obsess over that person for a while especially in the beginning stages of that relationship and it's up to you to kind of help them like figure out their attraction and also be there for them during that phase as much as they'll let you yeah and also uh, I think it's really interesting because I study uh, polyamorous communities here in Montreal and the community has something that they call a new relationship energy so that is the the new stimulus that comes from being with a new partner and all the excitement and priority prioritizing basically that comes from that so it's interesting that that term exists and that there is a community that discusses this as well. So actually, Kat, I'm going to throw it back to you and ask, uh, you just, you know, dropped a big word for maybe some of our audiences. And so can you describe to us what is polyamory? Yeah, so um, polyamory, at least uh, in the group that I study here in Montreal, would be uh, ethical non-monogamy. So it's people who have multiple relationships, often at the same time. It could be people of different genders, the same gender. Um, and these are people who have long-term loving relationships, and they choose to define it in such a way as to be more than sexual. So this is intimate uh, relationship bonding with multiple people in an ethical, open fashion. Great. And you actually bring us to our next question. Um, are there different kinds of love? And if so, what are they, in your opinion? So we just kind of talked about one, but if anybody else wants to throw anything out in there. Well, I actually, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about two other types of love, and maybe you can speak about this a bit, Daniel. Filial and, like, sibling love. Oh, yeah. And, like, you know, I was thinking about, and I was actually <laughs> trying to Google, I'm like, what is the chemistry that goes along with filial love or, like, sibling love? Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, I'm definitely interested in uh, maternal uh, love and sort of uh, parental love. And the reason why is because um, my doctoral research looks at uh, child maltreatment and suicide in the brain. So uh, by understanding bonding, it's really important because bonding uh, actually is quite protective against uh, mental illnesses. Uh, so there's tons of work to show that, um, you know, a, a mother rat, right, uh, before she sort of postpartum, before she delivers her pups, her brain looks actually quite different uh, afterwards. Um, so you're seeing a lot more oxytocinergic signaling going on, so a lot more social bonding. And the type of love that a mother shows actually depends on her age. Uh, so mothers that are uh, early on uh, sort of teenage pregnancy mothers uh, tend to be more instrumental with their love. So uh, they'll change diapers more often. They'll, um, you know, care for the child's needs. Whereas uh, mothers who have practice being mothers uh, tend to be a lot more affiliative. So they'll kiss the baby, they'll hug the baby, they'll lift them up. Uh, and there is a clear neurobiology behind it. Oh, that's so interesting. I know, I'm learning so much right now. Um, kind of related to the last point, it's interesting that we see people become so consumed with new romantic love such that it trumps the other kinds of love in their life, like fam like love with family or love with friends, when realistically those loves should be giving them similar um, emotional like fulfillment. Uh, so why do you see one type of love trumping the other types of love in a person's life? Yeah, so I think we can sort of hypothesize what might be going on in the brain. You can imagine that affiliative love, um, you've sort of been in love with that person for quite some time. Uh, whereas new relationships, that's very dopaminergic. It's very serotonergic. So that's the exciting, that's the pleasure-seeking component. So um, it's almost like the novel experience is what's trumping it. Uh, and it makes sense. Yeah, and moving to the social construction side of it as well, uh, there are people who talk about things like relationship anarchy and relationship hierarchy. So relationship hierarchy being you hierarchical 
hierarchy, hierarchalize uh, your relationships depending on that new relationship energy and the newness of it. And then there's other people who, for them, uh, relationship anarchy is each uh, relationship is independent of one another and no relationship gets priority. So you're, you're equal in every sense and you give and you receive as much love in each relationship. So that's really interesting in terms of constructions and uh, those forms of relationship giving and taking. Is that is that possible to do though? Give each relationship like its own priority. I feel like how do you make that balance? Because I don't. I know I don't make that balance. I wish I did, but it it seems really challenging and or difficult. Yeah, I think I don't know if it's something that's uh, completely possible or if it's just kind of a utopian mm. idea. But I think yeah. there are people out there who are deliberately trying to make sure that uh, they treat those relationships in that way. And so whether it's possible, I'm not sure, but people are trying. <laughs> but it's really, I think what you say is it's amazing to actually think about. It's amazing to think about the energies that we give the relationships in our lives and uh, being conscious or being aware of like how much each gets. Because if we are not aware, we can tend to like really like, you know, give low priority or not a lot of energy to one. So that's such a really good thing to kind of like think about and keep in the back or the front, really, of your mind. I'm also thinking like talking about these different kinds of relationships and different kinds of love. I'm thinking about like wondering how like these certain kinds of love can overlap. Like if you have a romantic love with a person, it can also overlap with a more um, friendship level of love. Or if you have a filial relationship, how that overlaps with loves that relate to friendship and um, bonding. Mm -hmm. Which brings us back to our previous question of the different kinds of love. Um, So what Hollywood tells us, what mainstream media tells us, is that there's kind of like a one type of heteronormative, usually cisgendered, white, middle class type of love. But we don't see all these different kinds of love. Um, And what does that mean for our students at McGill when we don't include these narratives in our conversations or in our educational material? So... I'm going to throw it back to you and say, what do you think is missing in our conversations about love at McGill? Well, I know in Res, at least, we really try to stay away and like uh, diverge away from the heteronormative, um, very white-focused ideals of love and just relationships in general. I know we have things like Res Project and just events in Res Life in general where we try to make them um, focus on, if ever, if ever we're talking about sex or gender relationships, that we make it a priority to prioritize um, not just the stereotypical uh, versions of love and relationships we have, uh, not just not heterosexual, so you have um, different sexualities, different genders, and different races, and how those things intersect and align with each other in different ways. Yeah, so maybe <clears throat> sort of since we have a sociologist in the room, um, from sort of an integration between sociology and neuroscience, maybe you want to talk about this afterwards as well, um, there's actually some work to show that uh, institutional discrimination for LGBTQ plus um, community members has a clear biological impact on their body. Um, so if you go in the United States and you look at states that have anti-gay marriage laws, right, sort of defined what love should be in these states, um, gay couples actually tend to have worse off stress physiology and increased risk for mental illness. Um, so sort of having that conversation, I think, also translates to better mental health and well-being for students on campus. Yeah, I agree. And I also think it's important for um, universities to have safe spaces where people can come together and talk about their romantic feelings uh, in a perhaps 
anti-normative way. Um, and I think those spaces are important to keep and maintain. And I think also when we look at on campus, when we have things like public displays of affection, we really need to, as students, uh, as part of this community, make sure that or at least check on our own reactions and our own feelings about these things. And maybe are we giving off some kind of sign that we're disapproving and not even realizing it? So what, how are we reacting to seeing these public displays of affection? And what does that say about our values and how they're being challenged? Yeah, great point. So there is actually some some research to show that we do have unconscious biases when we see um, non-heteronormative uh, couples. Um, and this usually translates to uh, people that don't identify as heterosexuals um, having greater sensitivities to seeing the face of disgust. Um, and that's because they're so often uh, seeing it when they have public displays of affection. And going back to kind of our nonverbal cues and our body language, so not just in the interactions that we're having, you know, one-on-one, but as we're passing by people in our community, as we're walking down the halls, as we're sitting in classes and we're receiving information, what is our facial reactions to some of the information that we're hearing uh, and the impacts that that has on people? So real body awareness as well. And I think this can translate into the way, um, not just comportment, but the way we talk um, let's say if we're speaking up in a class, if you're speaking up in a seminar or in the hallways or anything, um, if you're on campus, um, as you said, not just like checking yourself, but thinking about if you're about to say something and you're about to put it in a very heteronormative space, you know, or a gender normative space, if, you, if you're using um, pronouns that are specific to he and her, making sure that you open it up and give the room for they and give the room for thinking about non-heteronormative um, love and how you know you, we talk about it or how we talk about love in general and just being more broad. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually going to shift the conversation. We've been talking a lot about like person, uh, in-person communication, one-on-one communication, uh, being in a group, but what about technology? And how does that change our interactions and the way that we experience and process love? Well, breaking down love a little bit into sort of its um, constituent parts, I think technology has really changed the way we communicate and also like the information we have access to and the amount and the type of information. So, you know, people talk a lot about texting and social media and how those things have changed the way we communicate with our partners. You know, how much, how often do we expect them to be online and like communicating with us? Uh, do we want to know everything about them? Is, there, is what they're presenting online really an accurate representation of who they really are? So I think in terms of those aspects, it has definitely changed it a lot. So I'm going to add a little bit of spice to the conversation. <laughs> um, as a neuroscientist, I have a pretty sort of a, a particular perspective on this. Um, and the literature is fairly clear. So if we talk about the fundamental neurobiology of love, so the way that our brain loves, the, st- the stages of love that we go through, Um, technology has not changed uh, the way that we love. And the reason why is because technology hasn't been here long enough to have an evolutionary impact on our brain and our behavior. Now, if you talk about culturally the way that we express love, definitely. But at the end of the day, sort of the fundamental biology has not changed, just the way that we express. So just like you were saying uh, a second ago, sort of the way we communicate, definitely. Um, but but not the fundamental sort of stages and, and biology of love. At least that's what the evolutionary literature says. Yeah, but what about the impacts of like instant gratification, increased anxiety, stress, um, 
Which Someone accused me of ghosting them the other day. I, I was going like, to bring oh, that up. Sorry. <laughs> you know, ghosting. And what does that mean for self-esteem or bringing a person forward, having the ability to reach out, feel confident, um, or even hopeful that somebody is going to interact with you or meet you halfway? How does that, how does that impact our students? Um, I think it definitely opens up uh, room for feeling like someone should be kind of on the other side of the door at all times. And I also think it means that, especially because all this technology is permeating the spaces that we're in, uh, in school, at home, I think uh, we are expecting people to answer us back right away. And we're not really paying attention to the situations where maybe it isn't um, appropriate to be texting. Maybe it isn't appropriate to be sending pictures. And so it, it takes a certain reflection to think about, well, what spaces is it appropriate to be communicating? What spaces is it not? When do we get to have privacy? When do we not? So I think that's a really interesting question. I also like what you brought up about public versus private because so much of social media can be public. So your, ide your versions and ideals of love are compared to other people's ideals and how they communicate their love in other relationships as well. So you can be like, hey, that person's friend is tagging them in these fun memes and my friend isn't, so I don't feel loved in the same way. And how we compare ourselves to those kinds of relationships because everything is so public and just on, out there for everyone to see. And the risks with that, too. I mean, this is a Pandora's box. I think that topic of who has access to this information now that I've put my private conversations, maybe even images of myself online, they're no longer yours. Um, and I don't think we'll get too much into it, but I think it's a good thought, you know, something to leave us with and maybe even for a next episode on... Um, the use of technology and how do we lose some of that control. Um, we talked about uh, romantic love, being love-struck, um, so I want to bring it back to kind of these terms that we use in society. Do you feel that, um, you know, what is, I guess, the term romantic love, what does that mean to you? Um, and is that something that we should be applying because it's all love romantic or should we be looking at it separately in terms of love and romantic love. I know like in kind of the way love is constructed now, especially with the media that we were talking about earlier, it seems like as if romantic love is the sole type of love, but I think we're trying to move forward from that and trying to explore the different avenues and different ways we love and the different kind of versions of love there are. So then placing that romantic in front of it helps distinguish that it's not the only one, it's not the superior one, it's one of like many that may be equal or maybe like different from each other. Great point. Uh, I think it's Im important to acknowledge that this conflation of romantic love with partnership and with like long-term sort of like attachment to one person in the form of marriage is a pretty new um, and like Western concept. Uh, this idea that we're going to fall madly in love with someone and we'll also have kids with them, we'll also build this life together. Um, bears a lot, uh, depends on, depending on your culture and uh, your family commitments and all sorts of different factors. I think there could also be a lot of fluidity between the way that you feel. So it could start off being platonic love, become romantic love, go back to platonic love. I think there's room for it to kind of slip and slide all over the place emotionally to a certain degree. Um, and so I don't think that there is just one type. I think it varies, it changes, it's diverse, it overlaps. Uh, and I definitely see that fluidity. Um, one of the articles brought up the idea of uh, couples that had been... Uh, 
they've been surveyed after upwards of 10 years in a relationship together. And it talked about different levels of chemicals in their brain um, that were being released. So not like the hot, lustful chemical that like makes you forget your name, but there was also like oxytocin. Is that something that came up? Oxytocin as being as being a, a dispensed, I guess, by your brain to create like attachment and bonding, et cetera. Can you speak more to that, Daniel? Yeah. Okay. So for one, oxytocin is the sexiest hormone in the whole entire <laughs> brain. It's involved in so much, right? Um, what's really interesting, and there was a, a, a paper recently published at Concordia in the psychology department uh, that looked at oxytocin. So what's really cool is that if you give a couple's nasal spray of oxytocin, it doesn't really increase social bonding straight away. But if you give them nasal spray and then you subject them to a really socially stressful task, it'll increase bonding. And so one of the ways that we look at oxytocin right now is because oxytocin is an anti-stress hormone. Um, so uh, it's, it's anxiolytic, so anti-anxiety, anti-stress, et cetera. So the way that we're looking at oxytocin now uh, from the neuroscience field is that uh, we use social bonding as a way to manage stress. And in doing so, we actually have an opportunity for bonding. Right? So when you're really stressed out, you seek out your partner, and then your partner sort of helps you manage that stress, and that leads to more bonding opportunities. And think about it. I mean, who would you go to in that particular situation during stress? Somebody that's brand new in your relationship, right? You know, first two weeks that you're with them, or somebody that you've been in a relationship for quite a long time, right? And, and oxytocin tends to be the neurohormone that's predominantly found in the latter stages of love. The only problem, though, is that oxytocin reduces or sometimes can dull the effects of dopamine. And so there's less of the excitement and pleasure sometimes. And so it's about uh, spiking that into your relationship after being in it one for so long uh, with exciting new things, trying new things. Like uh, one paper showed that uh, sending surprise sort of uh, dirtier emails to your partner <laughs> led to uh, sort of better, uh, better, a better sex life for, for each partner. I think I'm going to bring us on another topic then to expand that. And I guess, you know, what turns you on? And there are so many different things that turn us on, but that are not talked about, like an email or a simple, oh, my goodness, this person left me the yogurt that I like in the morning. <laughs> How attractive is that? <laughs> so does anybody want to share kind of diverse ways of things that, you know, make you feel in love. I just like the last thing that you mentioned, like somebody leaving the yogurt, like having not just like physical things that turn you on, but like the actions that people do and how they show that they care for you. Like that could be something that kind of reflects that. And I think for me, um, at least with a partner who I live with and who I'm planning on continuing to be in a relationship for a long time, uh, we've really turned kind of mundane everyday things into stuff that's really fun and that really I definitely feel in love, you know, going to the grocery store and breaking out in a dance or just being very silly actually is uh, weirdly enough a turn on. Uh, and so I really appreciate that because of the laughter and the happiness and again, the dopamine that comes from those bonding moments. Uh, I think that definitely brings us closer and it's pretty sexy. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, maybe I could throw this back at you, Daniel, but um, I have read a, an article a ways back where it sort of refuted the popular opinion that, you know, in order to have, like, the best sex, you should try to relax and try to, like, feel comfortable and take a bath. Um, and actually, it's better to sort of put yourself in a heightened state, like, watch a scary movie, like, go on a roller coaster, and that actually, mm. it's, so it said in the article, increased satisfaction or pleasure. 
no, definitely there's there's some literature sh- to show that. So my advice to people is on your first date, take somebody to a horror movie. Oh, my goodness. And the reason why is because it's called arousal transference theory. So you're at the movie theater. Uh, you're safe, but you're also really scared. Uh, so your brain relabels the emotional state as arousal instead of fear, and you transfer it onto the person. Um, so b- being aroused actually works. Um, so getting back to the idea of things that sort of turn us on, I'm definitely a sapiosexual. I love intelligence. So going to like a hot lecture or like a lecture and then afterwards discussing it and getting into fights about it, super hot, like very hot. Yeah, actually, I was going to say something similar. I really like intelligent dialogue. Like if someone can talk about something in a, in a way that's Shows they really know what they're talking about. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> the brain is so large. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a great way to kind of end off of our episode today and think about different ways that we bring love, we receive love, that are not just the traditional, more talked about um, interactions and form of showing love. I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. Um, it's been great conversations. Shar, um, are we excited for our next so excited. episode? So much fun. It's going to be great. So follow us. Um, our episodes are on CKUT. You can also find us on the Consent McGill Facebook page as well as on our website through mcgill.ca slash OSVSRE. Again, this is Taking It All Off, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>